The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. That tells us it is time for The Bigger Picture. I'm Simon Rose and joining me is Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. I imagine we're not going to have trouble finding something to talk about this week, but where are we going to begin, Mike? Well, we need to begin, Simon, with the fact that people have been struggling to uh, fill up their cars and been worried about being keeping the lights on. This is a crisis of uh, confidence in the UK's energy and um, fuel provision as well. Uh, a complex affair, but something that has seen uh, scenes, including one that greeted me on uh, Monday night coming down the M11 with my mother-in-law of a, a queue tailing back from the Bishop Stalford services as people trying to get petrol as well in many ways it's 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 a it's a sense that some people are likening this to a return to the 1970s and there have been connections made to brexit to covid but in actual fact what we're seeing here is a confluence of factors uh, coming home to roost mm. and it's really two separate issues there is the energy issue which is seeing uh, the wholesale gas price uh, for the uk reaching record high um the reason that there is such a problem with our energy mix at the moment is that the UK is unusually dependent on uh, two forms of energy to form the majority of our uh, mix, which are natural gas and wind power. Uh, gas price, uh, gas production has slowed, particularly from Russia and mm. Norway, our two main sources, and we haven't had a lot of wind power as well, and there isn't enough spare capacity in the network. Um, add this yeah, so this despite the fact that it, we haven't even got anywhere near winter yet. No, and add to the fact that the UK has in Europe some of the lowest gas storage capacity of any EU nation. Uh, there is also an issue of the fact that we have left the European single energy market as well. But on, on the energy side, uh, gas prices, wholesale prices have reached a record high to a point where uh, most energy providers, if not all of them, are selling power to their customers at a loss. And the smaller providers have been driven out of the market in droves so at the start of the year there are about 70 companies uh, in the market by the end of the year it's been forecast there could be as little as 10. Mm. Yes I mean clearly there's a problem with the price cap is wonderful for consumers but of course it poses problems if the wholesale energy price then soars well above uh, what the energy companies are paying for it. I mean, it, it, it's a mess, but uh, when we're talking about energy, I mean, this is not unforeseen. Plenty of people have been pointing out that the government just seems to have ignored all the warnings that they've had for several years. Um, this, it doesn't smack of incredible competence, Mike, does it? No, it does not. So the um, the the CEO of Green, which is one of the, the many companies that's gone bust in the last week or so ironically my energy provider um, uh, and it should be and it should be said at the start if anyone's worrying about the security of supply don't because uh under the the rules the regulator off gem switches your energy supplier to another one that you'll be notified of that mm -hmm. so your credit balance and your uh, security of supply uh for energy are guaranteed what is an issue is that there are basically two policy responses that are awaiting the government in terms of the energy providers that, go, that are going out of the market. Mm. Let's leave the question of what's happening with the uh, supply. The, the political response in this country hinges on whether or, whether or not the government needs to do one of two quite tricky things. Firstly, 
they could lift the energy price cap, which is intended to keep consumer bills below a certain level, which at the moment, as you say, is driving the reason driving many energy companies to the wall because the wholesale price is far more than they can recoup through the price cap on consumer bills. Or the government can bail out the energy companies as well using taxpayers' money. Neither option is politically palatable. The energy secretary, Kwasi Kwarteng, has ruled out you, uh, removing the price cap because a Tory government being seen to subject uh, customers in winter to astonishing rises in bills when they had put in place a price control mechanism just mere years before under Theresa May's government would be political suicide. We're talking here sort of Edward Heath and the miners um, mm. strike here levels of stuff and who governs. And for the Tories, there's a nasty sense of um, deja vu about this too. But then there's also the question of the government having to find yet more money at the time when the national debt is over two trillion, at a time when the uh, deficit is 400 billion pounds, that when they, the Tories have just raised taxes to try and find more money to basically keep the remaining energy companies who are not overwhelmingly popular, I should say, mm. particularly the big six. So it's a difficult political decision to make. And of course, then there's the question about security of supply going into the winter. Will we have enough uh, gas and electricity uh, generated from wind, say, to prevent blackouts? And Kwasi Kwarteng's already ruled out a return to the three-day week. But just because he said it doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. Oh, no. I'll go for two instead. Mm-hmm. Um, why are we, why do we have such a low level of um, um, storage for energy in this country? I mean, I've been looking at figures compared to almost every other country in Europe, and it's it's absolutely abysmal. As if this idea that, I mean, I can understand supermarkets working on just-in-time methods, but you wouldn't expect that a, a, a government is going to do that for its energy supplies. No, and I think it's important to say that the UK's energy mix has changed uh, dramatically in the last 20, 30 years. So, mm. for example, we have all but moved away from the uh, the coal uh, fire power stations that were predominant 20 years ago. That's what, what's largely driven. But as we move towards what's seemed to be net zero, um, ideally for 2050, we are still dependent on uh, gas and wind. Uh, Wind power is, of course, not reliable. Uh, We do have natural gas supplies from the North Sea, but we do import a lot of stuff as well. Uh, The UK's gas uh, stores hold enough to meet the demand for about four to five winter days, but it's only 1% of Europe's total available capacity. The Netherlands has nearly nine times as much Germany has 16 times as much. Uh, The government's been very keen to play down any connection that can be drawn between soaring prices and low levels of storage. But the um, most people believe that the the UK's reliance on gas has left us um, more vulnerable to global price spikes. And for decades, the UK has avoided investment in uh, costly storage because we've relied on the North Sea, basically. But because the um, the, the North Sea supplies are winding down, because that domestic yes. supply is going, because the shutdown of the North Sea is occurring, it has exposed the UK to more volatilities on yes. the global market. Because big, supplies big, difference Norway, between, yeah, big difference between us and Norway, and there's how we used our um, resources from the North Sea. Yes, um, Norway sent up its sovereign wealth fund. We just seem to expect it was going to carry on forever. Yes, 
Yeah. And um, the trouble is, is that we, you and I both know about the, the benefits that North Sea oil and gas brought in terms of revenue and also in terms of ingenuity. But mm. this is the similar thing that the Americans are finding with shale now. You can have energy self-sufficiency, but it isn't always with the greenest energy sources as well. And you can have wind power. You know, we, we, the, the government's been a big fan of offshore wind, for example. Uh, but on average, a wind a turbine only works um, four days in five. Mm. And if there are low levels of wind, then the megawatt capacity falls. There's only two nuclear power stations available. We just haven't got the capacity and we're reliant too much on those single sources of energy at a yep. time when um, demand is likely to be high, yes. particularly if we have a cold winter. Yeah. Uh, well, it's turned to, to the, the fuel shortages. I mean, we're told by the, um, the petrol industry there's actually no shortage of petrol. The problem is getting it to the garages. Why? Uh, essentially, the UK has a shortage of road haulage drivers, HGV drivers, and this is another example of how uh, it's it's been connected to Brexit in some way, and I think it's been exacerbated by that as well. But we also have to connect this back to the pandemic, and the simple fact of the matter is is that a lot of people have chosen to turn away from the road haulage sector. You know, it would, many many uh, people would have left prior. Mm to the, the pandemic anyway but lorry drivers are their long hours they're on social hours the pay can be good but it often doesn't compensate for long times mm. away from families and this fundamental shortage of drivers has seen the government deploy a reserve tanker fleet to boost deliveries because this is this is isn't this isn't like the fuel strikes in 2000 and 2001 we're talking about here a fundamental shortage in something that people will be seeing this as well in gaps in supermarket shelves in delayed deliveries. It's been rumbling on for a while now, but unfortunately, yeah, as you say, it's been rumbling on. But what response of the government? What plans have the government put in to place? As far as we can see, none. Noticeably, nothing, as you say, and this is the oh. trouble that the government's uh, aware of so many moving targets, but doesn't seem to be able to respond to it. And even then, things like, to go back to the energy crisis, their response has been to raise the warm uh, homes discount uh, from £140 to £150. Now, that is a tiny fraction of the amount of money that might be needed to help keep people yeah. safe. Uh, ministers have been warned against using terms like panic, panic buying and stockpiling, but that's just what many people have been doing. And I know from Monday when I've had to go on a long car trip for getting, mm. say, diesel, for example, for a vehicle has become very difficult. Yeah. Well, yeah, the trouble with panic buying is once everybody is actually trying to get hold of something, it is rational to try and get some yourself. If you don't need the car, fine, then don't bother. But as you say, if people have to go on trips, then they need to find fuel. Um I mean, the word government is right, you know, it's right from the verb to govern. I'm not getting the impression, as I imagine many people are, that they're actually doing that at all. They're reacting to news headlines and to nothing else, as if somehow these problems have just come out of nowhere. Very annoying. But let us take a brief pause and then we can look at the Labour Party conference and see whether we think that they would have done much better. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is The Bigger Picture. I'm Simon Rose in conversation with political journalist Mike Indian. So, Mike, you've obviously been studying the Labour um, Party conference. Now, obviously, if Labour had won the last election, it's possible that Keir Starmer would not be the, the leader. But do you get the impression that Labour is a party ready for governing and they would make a better fist of it? 
Um, <laughs> I have to say uh, not, but I was chatting to a former Labour MP uh, just after the conference and he described himself to me as cock-a-hoop at the terms. He believes that the conference has taken the party close to the government. But if you look at the, uh, the event that was dominated by uh, headlines of the deputy leader, Angela Rayner, calling uh, Tory MPs scum mm. in a fringe and then doubling down on the comments as well. If you look at the fact that the only uh, you had the, the left of the party agitating, uh, including the last remaining member of Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet quitting, uh, kissed on the front bench mid-conference, clearly intended to cause some disruption. You had the fact that Starmer himself faced the protracted battle over changes to Labour Party leadership rules. I would be very cautious about overregging and saying that this is a Labour Party that comes ready for government. And meaning even the, the, the policy announcements that are starting to seep out now from Rachel Reeves, the Shadow Chancellor, who I had to say is a member of the Shadow Cabinet, who I think exudes a great deal of, of credibility, uh, such as uh, £28 billion to be spent per year on greening the economy, such as the uh, plan to scrap business rates, weren't entirely thought out because they weren't sure in the former how they'd be paid for, and in the latter, uh, what they'd be replaced with. They, she hinted at some sort of tax on uh, digital companies, and to be honest, abolishing business rates would definitely level out the playing field for struggling high streets as well, because it's something that digital companies don't have to contend with in that regard because of the lack of physical premises but ultimately most of the media attention was on uh the internal struggles inside the labor party that doesn't mean that's where the public's minds are what it hasn't delivered in the first poll i've seen since the conference uh, uh this morning is that it hasn't delivered the bounce but starmer took to the stage yesterday and he gave a quite assured performance in his first speech before the party faithful he dealt with the hecklers. And to be honest, in this in this case, the Corbynite left are arguably helping him because he's shown to be taking on his party. But I'm always wary uh, of, you know, thinking about the amazing speech that Neil Kinnock made in 1985, taking on militant tendency, that Labour leaders who've had to fight their own parties haven't won elections. Harold Wilson famously didn't. Blair didn't. There was internal rest, um, restlessness. But there is a window, I think, for Starmer to present himself as a credible alternative prime minister, a safe pair of hands, a competent pair of hands, particularly if that old adage rings true, that governments lose elections rather than opposition to winning them. Yeah, it, it, it does seem extraordinary that given how much incompetence our government is displaying, that Labour are not better able to capitalise on it. Uh, we must remember that this is a Labour Party, that this, this is in a very, very bad way. Uh, there was no sugarcoating this. The Labour Party is, I think, if uh, there was a parallel 100 years ago where the Liberal Party was eclipsed by the then rising Labour Party mm. around this time, actually, 1922 to 24, was uh, the, the sort of three pivotal elections that saw uh, the Liberals fade and Labour take over. For more, please see our wonderful series on Share Radio Archives about the history mm. yes, yes. of the political parties. But at this point in time, uh, Labour are on their lowest number of MPs um, since uh, 1935, even arguably even worse than in 1983, which is the worst result until then. The party is still bedeviled by internal divisions. They are led by a man who, whilst I many can see him as a prime minister, I would argue, and someone I think he would look competent and comfortable in government, uh, he he's not somebody who sets the world on fire, and I think this is this is arguably a different kind of politics now. This is this is probably 
the nearest analogy I can probably draw, and it's probably a very crude one, is the comparisons between Joe Biden and Donald Trump during the US presidential election last year. Uh, Biden, obviously, more of a radical at heart than, as you've seen in, in his numerous, um, and also a poor judge of foreign policy as well. But the um, Starmer's case, he has a lot to prove because his party has spent the last uh, 10 years rubbishing its own record in government. He has taken the clearest step he could yesterday to setting out what he called a serious plan for government, which meant moving away from Corbynism, mm. reclaiming the, the mantle of Blair and Brown as and indeed, you know, talking people like Harold Wilson, Clement Attlee, as, as late, he wants to be seen in the, in the mold of Labour leaders who have succeeded. But the modern ones who have, Blair particularly, had a certain charisma which Starmer lacks. And unfortunately, I can't help but think that the public at large might not be drawn to him in sufficient numbers to give him an overall majority. Mm. But if he can take the Tories' majority away, then there is room for him to sneak into number 10, I think. Mm. But what a situation we're in after 10 years of this government to be talking about it like that. Yeah, yes, indeed. Very, yeah, as if the last year and a half hadn't been depressing enough. Um, how do you, did you read or did you manage to even skim the, the document he produced before the conference? I can't remember how many tens of thousand words. 11,500 words. 11 was, is it true the spectator actually put a um, put it up online and put in the middle, if you're reading this, we'll give you a free bottle of champagne? And nobody claimed it. <laughs> I mean, Keir Starmer's essay this this is this i think sums up an attempt to basically he could have just done this in the speech i think his speech was 90 minutes as well which is very long and i know somebody who was covering it and by the end they were left a little bit uh glassy eyed but that but i think it's, it's unfair to to say that he is trying to flesh himself out he isn't trying to be something that he isn't this is the thing that um Ed Miliband, Gordon Brown fell down on, and where Corbyn succeeded, Corbyn was popular because he was seen to be true to what he is. Yes, yes. Star- if Starmer owned this idea of himself as a uh, a safe pair of hands, a competent man, someone who isn't going to set the world on fire but can get things done, and I think there are many people actually in the country who, after 10, 12, 14 years of the Tories in 2023, might gravitate towards him for that because. Mm people will start to look at him as a serious alternative prime minister. But the recent history of Labour leaders um, suggests that those who do not have that easy rapport, with the exception of Corbyn, who was able to build a rapport with the membership in certain sections of the public, uh, who lacked that kind of dynamicism of Blair and Wilson, do struggle. And I think fundamentally, it doesn't matter how many words Starmer writes, no matter what he says, no matter what the policies are, People are going to look at him and judge him in the old crude analogies of American politics. Do I really want to have a drink with this guy? Um, Well, talking of having drinks, uh, the Conservatives are about to have their conference. Is it a real virtual combination of the two? It will be in person. Uh, There will be some virtual event, but uh, there will be people traipsing up to Manchester uh, after the lovely converted railway station where it is held at the Manchester Central. It's going to be an interesting one because obviously for Boris Johnson, it's his second proper conference as party leader, uh, but also his time, first one since winning his magnificent landslide. He was deprived of a victory lap last year. Mm. And obviously where things have moved on so much since then, he's no longer facing Jeremy Corbyn. Brexit has, in inverted commas, been done. And now he's not the man who has to get Brexit done. He's now the man who has to set out how the Tories are going to build back better, level up whatever that should mean. Um, 
conservative competence is always a very different beast to Labour. It's arguably where things get done because, first of all, it's the government governing party's conference has been for the last 10 years. But also there's no policy component to it, unlike Labour. There's no wrangling over composite motions for £15 an hour minimum wages. Uh, it's mainly about the showcases, the speeches, the corporate events that are around that. It's a good chance to network as well. But the Prime Minister has to give an address on... Um, Wednesday, just like Keir Starmer did. And basically, it's his first really big test in front of the party faithful since COVID came in as well. I'm not anticipating he gets a hard time. But like Starmer, there are many in his party, particularly among his MPs, who are looking at Johnson and wondering what he actually brings to the table for the Tory party, mm. beyond the bombast, beyond the shallow charisma. And a lot of them, I start to suspect, particularly among the younger intake of MPs, the ones whose seats have those narrow majorities, Blythe Valley, Rother Valley, all the red wall seats that the Tories took that gave them that majority. Yes. We're starting to wonder, is Johnson going to be the man to help me keep this? Yes, and given what the rail networks are like in those sort of seats trying to get to Manchester, they'll presumably be going by car, which won't exactly put them in a good mood. <laughs> no, and um, obviously the government, the other thing I, I we keep to refer to is the fact that we now have a, a levelling, a Secretary of State for levelling up in Michael Gove. Uh, so that's been connected not to transport explicitly, but to the communities department. So that's connected also to housing. But unless there is it, the time is running out for the Tories to tangibly deliver on this. And arguably the biggest moment for Johnson's premiership. Yes, we've got the spending review coming up in just over a month's time on the uh, 27th mm. of October. But the levelling up white paper is also due as well. And it has to have some really meaningful ideas in it to really put some meat on the bones of that phrase. Because otherwise, all you've got is a, is, a, is a Secretary of State who's renowned for his dynamicism, but it's otherwise leading a department that has a slogan in the title. Yeah. Uh, Michael, let's, uh, let's take another pause for breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture on Share Radio, where I'm in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Um, Mike, as we recalled, um, uh, it's the end of the furlough scheme set up by the government right back at the beginning of the uh, COVID pandemic. Um, how many people are still on furlough? Do we know? And what effect is its um, ending going to have? The, the effect of the furlough scheme, it's hard to think of a more impactful government policy than there has been in recent times. So at the end of the furlough scheme, some nearly 12 million people have had their wages partially or wholly paid by the state up to two and a half thousand pounds a month through some form with of employer contributions factored in yeah. the unemployment the structural rate of unemployment has been kept to a manageable level and it's cost the exchequer something like 70 uh, billion pounds but the objective was to keep unemployment down to keep people in work and in that sense it has succeeded and this is yet another a feather in the cap for the chancellor rishi sunak who's had a fairly meteoric rise over the last two years obviously mustn't forget that two years ago he had just gone from being a junior minister to being in the cabinet now he's uh, it's hard to imagine him not being at the treasury because he's had arguably uh, as much impact on people's day-to-day lives as say gordon brown did inside his 10 years inside the treasury as well it's hard to think of a, of a chancellor who's had that degree of profile but with furlough winding down it does of course leave questions about what happens to the one million people who will be left in limbo at 
the end of it because there's still one million people on that scheme according to the ONS as it winds down today. Um, some forecasters are expecting a small increase in unemployment, uh, but there are certain sectors of the economy that have been more severely hit by the pandemic, including the travel sector, the service industry, we mentioned the road haulage sector before. And of course, the trouble is if unemployment remains comparatively low, there's less incentive for people to go and fill the jobs that do need um, plugging, mm. as we mentioned earlier, in the road haulage industry, for example. The government's also avoided so far a sector-based furlough scheme approach. Now, I wonder if they have um, considered it, but they have just avoided it because of the sake of administration. Uh, but the number of jobs on offer has rebounded as well to over a million now, um, since now that furloughs ended. And the UK economy grew between uh, grew between April and June by 5.5%, which was up from the initial estimate of 48 so the headline numbers all suggest that furlough has actually worked. And the government is claiming that there were probably 2 million people uh, fewer on the dole queue because of the scheme as well. Now, in terms of a legacy for a chancellor, that's not a bad one to brag about. Hmm. Um, you want to talk, turn now, I believe, to, to fishing. Yet again, fishing is in the, the news. Um, uh, both UK fishermen um, complaining, but also the French fishermen complaining. So what's happening? Yes, yeah, so there's a lot happening in, in fishing. And it's one of those industries that's, that's a fascinating political bellwether that's kind of, it became the poster child of Brexit and it's mm. now become something of a, uh, of, of, of a poor relation, as it were, under the, the trade cooperation agreement. So there's, there's arguments rumbling on today in the press about um, Franco-English fishermen uh, dealing with licensing requirements. It's an immensely technical issue, and I won't bore you with all the detail, but what I wanted to draw attention to, um, it was not just the French anger over the UK rejecting permits, but it's analysis that's come out today from the sector body, the National Federation of Fishermen's Organisations, who have commissioned a former DEFRA official, a former DEFRA fisheries negotiator, to look at the cost-benefit analysis of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, TCA, uh, the government claimed it would leave the uh, fish, UK fishing industry initially. Uh, it said it would leave it £148 uh, million pounds a year better off. Uh, under the NFFS analysis, bear in mind these were a group that supported Brexit, were keen to see the autonomy mm. and see the government's promises realised. These are not people who could be deemed in the parlance as Ramonas. Um, it now, it's now forecasting that by 2026, this sector could be £300 million pounds worse off. Now, that's an astonishing turnaround. And it really does raise questions about where Boris Johnson's government has left British fishermen. Mm. And indeed, you know, for example, we do not have complete access over catching the species within our waters. Um, EU fleets are allowed to catch uh, 42,000 tonnes of fish in UK waters compared to us being only allowed to catch 12,000 in EU waters. We may be free from the regulatory straitjacket that was the common fisheries policy, but this is yet another example of how Boris Johnson's poorly thought out Brexit deal is failing to deliver for those people who are going to be needed it most. Mm. Uh, well, it would be nice to say that there'd been lots of cheerful things we're talking about today. <laughs> but if I was feeling a bit miserable at the beginning, I think I'm feeling equally, if not more miserable at the end, uh, <laughs> Mike. Uh, let's hope something um, good 
happens. Um, uh, but I will just say thank you for the moment to Mike Indian, uh, author of the Graduate Tendency blog, political commentator. He will be back chatting to me again in a fortnight's time. Uh, well, I was going to say I look forward to that, Mike. I'm not altogether sure that's quite the right <laughs> phrase, but we will be talking in a fortnight. Thank you very much indeed. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.